Chapter Fifty Six The Event Al In the name of God, the Most Compassionate, the Most Merciful. When the event will inevitably occur. The Quran refers to the Day of Resurrection by a variety of names, depending upon the context or to exhibit a particular aspect of it. Here, it is referred to as the event, the occurrence, or that which is about to befall. There is no denying that it will come. God does not invoke this sense of eminence to frighten or threaten people with punishment, but rather to warn them of something that will definitely happen. It will bring down some and raise others, or can be translated as, it will descend and rise. It will contract and expand. The majority of commentators have understood raise to mean that the day of resurrection will cause the righteous to be exalted and elevated, and bring down to indicate that it will make the sinners abased and humiliated. But this interpretation does not seem particularly convincing, for it neither fits the verse's context nor have any relation to the verses immediately before or after it. In addition, Quran uses lowering on three separate occasions to enjoin its audience to be dutiful toward one's parents and kind to the faithful. This is the figurative meaning but its literal meaning is to draw together and contract, as opposed to spreading out and rising. The effects of this lowering and rising on the sun are explained in the following verses. When earth is shaken violently, and the mountains are powdered to dust, this event will be so terrible that even the most gigantic boulders will be smashed into powder as fine as flour. Mountains are usually seen as symbols of greatness, strength and endurance. However, even these great mountains will be reduced to mere powder on this tremendous day. So they will become floating dust particles. When any matter explodes, the resulting fragments, no matter how small, will fall to the ground. However, this particular explosion will be so intense that these mountains will be reduced to dust particles resembling those motes of dust we see when a beam of sunlight shines into a dark and dusty room. But why? One wonders, does God tell us about this terrible event? Surprisingly, almost half of the verses revealed during the first two years of the Prophet's mission are about the Day of Resurrection, a concept that held no appeal for the pre-Islamic Arabs. It seems obvious that God had a special underlying purpose here, to rouse these people from their slumber and capture their attention. For the first three or four years, the Quranic discourse focused on the resurrection to jolt people out of their daily thought patterns, draw their attention away from their everyday routines. The purpose of this world only becomes clear when people accept that they are travelers on the long road to eternity, and that this life is but a brief, temporary resting place on the way to their real destination. If there is no afterlife, then why should I sacrifice for the less fortunate? If there is no hereafter, no reward, and no final accounting of the world and its inhabitants, then why should I die for a higher cause? From a rational and philosophical perspective, there is no genuinely persuasive answer to these questions. The Qur'an thus opens with the hereafter 
and the day of resurrection because everything else follows from the fact of their reality. After this brief digression, we now return to the above-mentioned descending and rising. Descending refers to contraction, and rising refers to expansion. As science has shown, each star dies when its own gravity causes its core to collapse into itself, while its outer layers expand outward. In today's terms, when it becomes a supernova. The sun's core temperature is about 15 million degrees centigrade. As the result of 500 million tons of hydrogen being converted into helium via nuclear fusion every second. However, the sun remains stable because the pressure generated by these reactions is countered by the gravity of its own mass. When the star's reserves of hydrogen, its fuel, are expended, this gravity initiates the collapse of its core. At the same time, the star's outer layers begin to expand outward, as if the star is expanding to several thousand times its own size. This all takes place due to the force of an unimaginable explosion one fully capable of reducing our planet's mountains to dust. As already mentioned, these prophecies are designed to inform humanity that there is no point to becoming attached to anything here, because this world is no more than a temporary place for doing good deeds and growing in spirituality. You will be divided into three groups. The companions of the right hand. Who are they? These are the successful and happy ones, those who are associated with goodness and blessings. It may even be that the political terms right wing and left wing have their origins in this sort of terminology. The companions of the left hand. Who are they? In contrast, these people are associated with failure and bad luck of preparing a wretched life for themselves in the hereafter. The Quran sometimes refers to them as the companions of the left. And the foremost ones will precede everyone. These foremost ones comprise the first people who believed in monotheism, embraced the divine religion, like trailblazing prophets and true saints, and led others to that path. For they will be the ones brought nearest to God, Muqarrabun. They were on the front lines of the battle between truth and falsehood. Note, however, that brought near, Muqarrabun, implies the person's station in terms of moral refinement and virtue, not his or her physical proximity to God. In gardens of bliss, they are in the gardens of paradise, which are filled with God's blessings. A multitude of them will be from the past generations, and a few from later generations. But why should the bulk of the Muqarrabun be drawn from the ancients? Is it because the world is slowly declining and there are fewer great godly people among its inhabitants? It appears that long ago, people did not have the same ability to understand and accept spiritual truths as we do today. Therefore, it was necessary to send more spiritual guides and moral teachers to guide them to the right path. But this need for the institution of prophethood ended with Muhammad, the seal of the prophets, who brought God's final revelation to humanity. On Well-Woven Couches From this verse onward, God describes what has been promised to the inhabitants of paradise. 
But remember that all verses about paradise and hell are only allegorical or symbolic. As no human words can accurately depict the enjoyments of paradise and the tribulations of hell, allegories are employed to make them intelligible. This is significant to give us a vague idea of what awaits the faithful in paradise. The Quran says that the muqarrabun will recline on well-woven couches. And so a couch can be considered a place where friends gather to rest, relax, and enjoy themselves. We do not need to debate its meaning or think about it in terms of a contemporary couch. Brocaded means something that has been firmly woven together, something strong and stable. Thus, the place of the nearest to God is steady, firm and enduring. Reclining on them, facing each other. Facing each other connotes that the atmosphere surrounding them is amicable, friendly, and intimate. Everlasting youths will circle among them. In those days, it was the epitome of comfort and luxury to sit and be served by youths bearing trays of sweets, fruits, and other items. This image is, of course, merely an allusion to the kind of service and luxury that we, who still dwell in this world, cannot even begin to imagine. With goblets and ewers and a cup from a pure spring. Goblet refers to a vessel with a handle and a spout. It seems that this cup is a kind of vessel that is forever refilled one that will never be empty of the wine of paradise. In a general sense, the container's physical size, as well as the amount of liquid that it can hold, are determined by what the drinker did while in this world. That causes no headache or intoxication. The wine of paradise is not a fermented grape drink that deprives one of his or her self-control or good sense. And whatever fruits they prefer, and any fruits that make them glad and cheerful, and the meat of any bird they like, and beautiful companions, like hidden pearls, all these words Goblets, ewers, cup, fruits, flesh of birds, etc. appear in the indefinite form to indicate that they are of a variety and a quality unknown to us. At the same time, the indefinite form can be used to magnify something. In this case, it reflects the wondrousness of paradise's blessings a reward for what they used to do. This is the result of their deeds and achievements. They will hear no frivolous and sinful talk therein, but only clean and wholesome speech. It is truly a great blessing for the righteous to be in an environment that is free of vain talk and profane speech. People naturally want to feel an affinity with what they are saying and hearing in a conversation, as opposed to talking with someone who wastes their time or drains their energy. These are all merely glimpses of a world beyond the grasp of the human mind and imagination. Given that majority of our energies are expended in satisfying these natural desires, which are deep and instinctive urges within us, why should the Quran not invoke them? However, we must always remember that while this language appeals to our nature as human beings, it is ultimately symbolic and contains deeper meanings.
As for the second group, the companions of the right hand, who are they? Among them are thornless lote trees. What a wonderful and noble people they are! A sidr tree, which is specific to warm climates, may grow as tall as hundred feet and live for a long time. These trees, which have small leaves, call to mind a tall and shady tree. For Arabs, the only problem with this tree was that it had thorns. Apparently, this will not be the case in paradise. And clustered acacia. The acacia tree has long, densely arranged green leaves. These verses illustrate the different kinds of trees and vegetation found in paradise. And extended shade. This description confirms how the Quran reflects the Arabian Peninsula's environment, geography, and climate. If you were to tell people who live in Scandinavia that paradise is full of shady trees, they would reply that this would not suit them because all they want is to feel the sun's warmth. But for the peninsula's inhabitants who lived and labored in scorching heat, paradise was a place filled with trees that would provide them with shade even as the sun moved across the sky. Constantly flowing water. This means water that falls from a height. So paradise is a garden with a waterfall surrounded by the shade of trees, a place that contains every imaginable kind of blessing. Abundant fruits. Keep in mind that the paradise being described here belongs to the companions of the right and is a level beneath that reserved for the muqarrabun. For the latter, God said, and whatever fruits they prefer. But here, he simply says, abundant fruits that are never out of season or forbidden. None of these fruits and blessings is ever exhausted, withheld, or reserved. Notice how all of these descriptions are given in a language that is easy for the Prophet's contemporaries to understand. What language other than metaphors can God use for them to understand? To the wonders of paradise. And raised couches. Raised, here, means valuable. We have created for them something new and made for them virgins. This new something has been made specifically for this situation. The use of virgin, which can be applied to both men and women, is significant because it implies that each person has his or her own spouse, male or female. The same is true here in the sense that, in general, everyone has a condition and an environment that belongs only to him or herself. Loving of matching stature These spouses are mutually compatible, of equal status, and approve of each other. For the companions of the right hand many from the past, and many from later generations. All of this applies to the people of the right hand, who consist of a group from the first generations and a group from the later generations. So, while the muqarrabun were more numerous in the earlier generations, the people of the right hand have always been equally numerous. As for the third group, the companions of the left hand. Who are the companions of the left? These left-leaning people are those morally polluted individuals who have corrupted their own selves. They will dwell amid scorching wind and boiling water.
The verse refers to a scorching wind whose heat penetrates the skin. Therefore, the people of the left hand live in a place that offers no protection, whose harm and toxicity penetrates to the very core of their being. And shadows of black smoke. This smoke is as thick and as black as tar. They live beneath the shadow cast by the smoke from the fires they lit while they were alive in this world, that are neither cool nor refreshing. This shadow or shade has absolutely no benefits, for it neither cools the air nor brings relief. Before, they overindulged in luxury. Here, the verse describes an individual whose wealth and happiness have taken away his or her good sense and goaded him into arrogance and rebellion. One whose prosperity and enjoyment of life have led him or her to forget or reject what is true and infringe upon the rights of others. So, these people were both wealthy and arrogant. Persisted in great sin. In addition, they were openly insolent and not bound to their oaths. Thus, the companions of the left hand were extremely corrupt and used to say, When we are dead, and have become dust and bones, shall we then be raised again, along with our forefathers? They used to say, indicates, that they denied the truth so many times that it became part of who they were. Thinking only of themselves and their interests, they regarded all whom they hurt or the crimes they committed as irrelevant. They would ask, incredulously, Do you expect us to believe that we and our forefathers will come back to life after we have died? Say, O oh Muhammad, the earliest and later generations will all be gathered on a predetermined day, Miqat. Interestingly, God uses Miqat here which is derived from the same root as this chapter's name, something that occurs at a known place and time. Hereafter is a miqat, because it is the time and place of a meeting that exists in God's foreknowledge. You who have gone astray and denied the truth will eat from the bitter tree of zakum. Here, God directly addresses the people of the left hand who led themselves and others astray by denying the truth that was sent to them. In fact, tree here can be used to denote any complex system or network. Zakum is something bitter, unpleasant, and stinking. Now, we do not know exactly what this thing in hell represents, but as eating causes a person to grow and live, God has used familiar words to help us understand what they will be eating. Filling your bellies with it. This is an allegory for the illicit gains with which they filled their bellies. The Quran says, those who consume the property of orphans wrongfully, thereby ingesting fire into their bellies, will soon enter the blazing fire. In reality, the condition described here is nothing but giving their present life its physical reality. And drink boiling water, like thirsty camels. This will be their welcome on the Day of Judgment. They eat so much that they are unable to quench their all-consuming thirst. Hence, the Quran says that they will fill their bellies by eating zakum 
and will drink, but nevertheless remain eternally thirsty. Could there be any clearer metaphor for human lust and greed? From verse 57 onward, the Quran undertakes to answer those who, in earlier verses, deny the resurrection in the hereafter. The ensuing series of arguments seeks to help people understand what these concepts mean. None of these arguments are remotely philosophical, jurisprudential, theological, mystical, or literary. On the contrary, God calls attention to the very basic, practical phenomena of birth, dust, fire, and water, to encourage us to examine our surroundings so that we might begin to comprehend life after death. It was we who created you. Will you then not admit the truth? Here, God uses we to emphasize who is the creator. Now, if someone has made something once, making it again should be somewhat easier. After all, it seems obvious that a carpenter would find it easier to make the same table a second time. Notice how God begins by presenting an argument drawn from our everyday experiences. Have you seen that which you emit? When God says, have you seen, this does not mean to see with one's eyes but to pay close attention and reflect upon something. Have you considered the origins from which your life began? Have you thought about the sperm that joins with the ovum and settles in the uterus? Do you create it, or are we the creator? Are you, or we, continuously creating it? Notice that it is a present tense verb, as that tense signifies continuity. We know that about 500 million sperms are released during a sexual intercourse. Amazingly, only one sperm is needed to fertilize the ovum and create a zygote, the single cell that will multiply into all of the other cells that make a person's heart, lungs, bones, skin, muscles, and every other kind of cell in the body. Who determined this process of cell division? Throughout the fetus's formation, from the moment of conception until its final development, it is a new creation at every stage. From an insignificant drop, that contains the repository of all of the information necessary to produce a fully formed human being, until this drop becomes a fully developed embryo, God asks the deniers if they are the ones who guide this process. This process of creation, which represents the genesis of a living being, is one of the greatest indicators of the existence of a single all-powerful, all-wise Creator. We ordained death among you. Nothing prevents us from changing your forms and recreating you in a way unknown to you. We have allotted a specific amount of time to you. Your life consists of a program that is being implemented stage by stage. If there were no death, we would live here forever. Why does God set a particular time and duration for this life before ordaining death? Does this not show that this fleeting worldly existence cannot be the ultimate reason for our being? Nothing can prevent us from recreating humanity in a new form and in another world that is totally unknown to you. In other words, God has determined that human beings must follow these stages of development before being given a new life in a new and different form. And surely, 
you already know the first creation. Why then do you not reflect? The first creation refers to our life here. We were brought into existence here, having never existed before. So reflect on this reality. Wake up from your slumber and learn something from this. Today, when advances in the science of genetics have revealed our world's magnificence and shed light upon how humanity came into existence, why should people remain heedless? After everything we have learned and discovered, why do we still cling to our denial? Why do we forget and neglect the question of where we came from, as well as refuse to believe that God can resurrect us? Therefore, this chapter's first argument advanced against those who deny the resurrection is that since God originally created the cosmos, doing so a second time should be even easier. The second argument is that the stages of human development from conception to birth prove the existence of an all-powerful and all-wise creator. An embryo is in a constant state of being created. The third argument is that the phenomenon of death shows that we are not created to remain here forever, that there must be some transcendental reason for our life. As Rumi says, which seed was buried in the ground and did not grow? Why suppose that the seed of humanity would be any different? Every buried seed contains all of the genetic information required to grow an adult plant. It sprouts forth and grows when spring comes. We witness this all around us because this world first creation, presents models and examples that can help us understand the nature of the resurrection. Have you considered that which you cultivate? Have you paid close attention to what you sow and plough? Farmers bury seeds or plant seedlings. That is their only role for they have no power to make these plants grow. Just like the seed planted in the womb, it is beyond our power to transform it into a human being. Is it you who make them grow, or us? We might call a farmer a grower, but is it really a human being who does this? Just like the embryo, is in a constant state of becoming, transforming step by step into a full-fledged human being. Whatever else we bury in the soil will gradually decompose and be destroyed. So why do the seeds that we plant grow into a tree instead of decomposing? Do you have any idea what power of life is contained within that tiny seed? Whose hand brings forth such seeds, and from where do they obtain their power? Do we do this, or does he? The Quran sometimes mentions the natural laws and systems that God has set in motion, one of which is the potential for growth that lies dormant in the soil. If we wished, we surely could transform it to dust, then you would be dumbfounded, saying, We are burdened with debt and have been deprived. If God's will, meaning His laws, were any different, the seed would have shriveled and died instead of growing into a green and healthy plant. Any seeds planted in clean, pure and unpolluted soil will produce plants that will sprout and become verdant by their Lord's will. If this were to happen only sometimes, only certain parts of the world would be green. Then humanity would have said, Indeed, we have suffered loss. Rather, 
we have been deprived of our expected benefit, for all of its efforts and labors would have come to naught. So why, when we feel confident about relying upon these natural laws for our continued existence, and when we benefit from them so abundantly, do we not see these as blessings worthy of our gratitude? Is the natural order itself not enough to prove that an all-powerful and an all-wise creator exists? Have you observed the water that you drink? Notice how simple and straightforward all of these examples are. No one needs to have studied or earned a degree to understand them. Was it you who brought it down from the rain cloud or us? God employs we or us for all of the laws and systems that he created and set in motion. Here, it refers to the water cycle. Water evaporates from Earth's bodies of water due to the sun's heat and forms into a cloud. Wind, which is caused by variations in air pressure, moves the cloud to dry land. When the air around the cloud cools, the water vapor condenses into rain that falls upon Earth as pure water. And yet, the water in the seas and oceans had been bitter and salty. Is this not worthy of reflection? If we wanted to, we could have made it bitter, so will you not be thankful? If we pay attention to the water we drink, we will see many different factors combined together to bring us this refreshment. These springs and rivers have flowed continuously for millions of years, even though the sources of virtually all fresh water are the seas and oceans, whose waters are salty and bitter. These two waters are constantly mixing together, and yet one is always salty and the other is always fresh. God could have willed that the natural laws make rain so bitter and salty that it would be undrinkable. So why do we not acknowledge and give thanks for this blessing, or ask from where these laws that provide us with fresh and drinkable water come? And then another proof. Consider the fire you kindle. Is it you who made the wood for it grow, or us? This tree, which drew energy from the sunlight for decades, grew tall and stored the energy as carbon in its trunk and branches. Its bark and wood are nothing but an accumulation of carbon, another kind of resurrection that no one notices until they are used for fuel. Then, all of that stored-up energy is released in a brilliant blaze. The Quran asks by whose command this process occurs. Has not God's guidance and power alone allowed the tree to store up so much energy before people burn it up in a single hour to get some heat and light? We made it a reminder and a comfort for the dwellers in the wilderness. God made these blessings a reminder and intended the energy to meet the need of nomadic desert dwellers for light, heat, and fuel for cooking. This fire can refer to all forms of energy used in industries such as factory machines, ships, and railway locomotives all over the world for over a century. Where did this energy come from? In fact, the energy produced by heat is arguably the cheapest form of energy and had tremendous effect upon human life and civilization since fire was discovered in early Stone Age. These are the Quran's arguments for God's existence. Therefore, if we wish to reach certainty, we do not need to devise scientific or technical arguments, 
but only to look at the natural order with a clear and unbiased gaze. Look at semen, dust, fire, and water. These things alone are enough to convince you that God exists. Therefore, O Muhammad, glorify the name of your Lord, the Great. So when observers consider the energies of the cosmos, the plant kingdom, the wonders of genetics, and the amazing series of phenomena that supply us with water, they will naturally become aware of God's greatness. Name, here, refers to a quality or an attribute, as opposed to a literal name. Thus, recall that Rabb, Lord, signifies the great divine lordship, governance, and direction in the cosmos. Allah refers to the divine essence, the object of worship that his servants venerate and adore, whereas Rabb is the master and director, the one with absolute power and authority. In sum, this verse is asking us to see who the Lord of this cosmos is, what kind of being governs this world, and what awesome lordship is at work in this created universe that contains something amazing no matter where we look. Glorify means to declare your Lord free of blemish or deficiency. We can always find shortcomings when we look at what human beings have made, but not with anything that God has created. I swear not, or I emphatically do swear, by the position of the stars. Indeed, it is a mighty oath, if you only knew. All of the examples mentioned above have been taken from the world around you. Moreover, God does not swear by the heavens, even though it is worthy of such an honor. However, some commentators of the Quran have taken the not to signify emphasis in the form of an apophysis rather than negation. The position Falling places of the stars signifies that they have finally reached the end of their lives. Today, we understand to some extent what a great event a supernova is. However, the central question here is, what are all these oaths for? That this is truly a noble Quran. All of these oaths were taken for this reason the wonders of the fetus, the soil and the plant kingdom, the energy released by fire, the water cycle, and all the wonders of the heavens, the death and rebirth of stars. All of these amazing phenomena were invoked to testify to the fact that this Quran is a noble book. All of these are no more than preliminary steps laid out for us so that we would believe in this one truth. This scripture is not the product of a human mind. That this book is more exalted and more precious than what we can imagine. In a book well guarded. The source of this Quran is preserved. The origin of its laws and ordinances are with God, and thus flow from Him. As the Quran's source, God's infinite knowledge is beyond human comprehension. A small fraction of it was sent down in an understandable format that addresses humanity's needs. That none shall touch except the purified. Only those who have purified their souls and protected themselves from the evil of Satan's corrupting insinuations can hope to attain the meaning of this scripture's message. Nowhere does the Quran say that it will guide those who memorize, recite, or the scholars of religion, 
On the contrary, it says those who can control themselves and resist their desires will be guided. Therefore, until one starts the process of self-purification and resolves to escape the snares of this world, the Quran will be of no help. Only those who want purity and care to cleanse their souls can become familiar with this book. This verse uses touch to indicate this intimate familiarity, for this particular word means to unite with it and make it part of oneself. But if people still retain some selfishness, arrogance, and other diseases of the soul, how can they possibly hope to kindle the light of the Quran in their heart? A revelation, Tanzil, from the Lord of the Worlds. Tanzil indicates that the Quran has been sent down in a form that human beings can understand. We sometimes do the same thing with our own children to grasp new ideas. The Lord of the Worlds means the one who is master over all the worlds, the one who guides all of this world's inhabitants and wants to educate us. This is why he makes these teachings comprehensible to the human mind. Do you then take this message so lightly or hold in contempt? The verse here talks about those people who do not take this important matter seriously. Just possessing the scripture is not enough, for it must become part of you so that your heart and soul can implement its teachings in your life. Sadly, it is all too easy to see the parallels between this description and how contemporary Muslims treat their heavenly book, forgetting that it presents all these accounts to remind and teach us about the truth and make your living by repudiating it. The only benefit you derive from this book is your denial of it. Your days are empty of the great blessing it contains. When the soul of a dying person comes up to this throat, while you are looking on, a hospital patient on the threshold of death, despite all of the surrounding advanced medical devices and equipment, as well as loved ones, looks around desperately and hopes to somehow be rescued. Though we are closer to him than you, even if you do not see. Must you really be on the point of death before you believe? Do you not see that God is closer to you than anyone else or even your own soul until it is too late? Why then, if you are exempt from the reckoning and recompense, do you not bring back the soul if you are truthful? If you think you will not be held accountable for your deeds and there is no judgment or recompense for your actions, then why don't you bring someone back to life, if you are right? Aren't you the one in charge? Obviously, you cannot do this because, whether you like it or not, you know that there is a master to whose laws everyone is subject. If he, the dying person, is one of those who will be brought near to God, Muqarrabin, then he will have rest, ease, and a garden of bliss. Of course, the promise given here is a similitude. When someone is choking and cannot breathe, catching even a single breath gives a great relief and comfort. These are part of God's mercy and forgiveness that he directs toward the believer. This verse says that the truly happy ones are those who, as they are dying, breathe in the scent of paradise that is filled with God's blessings. Rest, ease, abundance, and a garden of bliss are in the indefinite form 
because we have no clue as to what awaits us as long as we live in this world. If he is one of the companions of the right hand, then a greeting of peace be unto you will be conveyed to you from the companions of the right hand. It appears that greeting of peace for you comes from the people of the right hand. The inhabitants of paradise give this greeting and send salutations to anyone who enters, namely, toward the people of the right hand. But if he is one of those who denied the truth and went astray, then he will be welcomed with boiling water and roast in hellfire. These punishments are the fate of those who denied these words, prevented others from following the truth, and stubbornly clung to falsehood. Obviously, such punishments are the outcome of their own deeds, put into a form that we can understand. As how can we possibly understand what it means to be deprived of God's mercy? This is the certain truth. There is no doubt that this speech is not a joke, but rather an absolute truth. God does not want to scare us as though we were children. All he is doing is explaining the reality of the matter. God is neither antagonistic toward his servants, nor does he want to send them to hell. The punishments and torments described here are part of the natural order of cause and effect. Just as we will suffer greatly if we eat poisoned food, so will the erroneous beliefs that we allow into our hearts, those that poison our soul, will one day most definitely have negative consequences. After all, false and erroneous ideas are even more harmful than poor physical nourishment. Sadly, we usually focus on external appearances and neglect inner realities. Therefore, glorify the name of your Lord, the Great. Those who follow the truth do not share the same fate as those who follow falsehood. When this verse was revealed, the Prophet told his followers, Recite this when bowing in prayer. Glory to my Lord, the Most High, and His is the praise. When we bow in prayer, we glorify God with His quality of grandeur, and when we prostrate, we praise the power He has over His creation. In summary, having identified various elements of the natural world, semen, dust, fire, water, and the magnificence of the cosmic order, as well as the greatness of the scripture that has been sent down. This chapter then speaks about the dangers we face and the importance of our fate in the next world. All things considered, isn't the best course we can take to place our trust in God and hand all our affairs over to Him?